From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm David Bank, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, February 10th. I'm filling in for Brian Walsh, and today I'm joined by Fran Siegel of the Impact Investing Alliance to talk about jobs, climate, and communities in this week's State of the Union Address. Hi, Fran. David, hi. Great to be with you today. Terrific to see you again. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. If you're an impact investing nerd, you've probably heard of Iris Plus. It's the catalog of more than 700 impact metrics across 17 themes. Iris Plus standardizes measurements for outputs such as quality jobs, agricultural yields, and water or energy conserved to give investors comparable data and help them manage impact performance. We had a Q&A with Kelly McCarthy, who shepherded Iris Plus into being at the Global Impact Investing Network. She's now putting it to the test at Vistria, a private equity firm in Chicago. Check out the conversation with Kelly on impactalpha.com. And the theme of this month's list of impact funds is alternative finance and catalytic capital. Among the funds currently raising money is women-led Accesso Impact Fund, providing debt and revenue-based financing for small businesses in Central America. In India, the Climate Seeds Fund helps startups with seed capital as they transition out of accelerator programs. And in the U.S., Full Cycle Climate Partners backs companies with technology that is still pre-commercialization and provides project financing for facilities and production. Speaking of accelerators, Common Future has launched its racial equity accelerator with Uncharted. Common Future acquired Uncharted in a rare nonprofit merger last year. It's providing a half million dollars to 10 entrepreneurs with plans to reduce racial wealth gaps. The cohort includes the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, which is creating a loan fund for black farmers, and Change Labs, which is funding startups in Navajo Nation. Ariel Investments raised $1.5 billion to build the pipeline of minority-owned suppliers. Ariel will buy up mid-sized companies that aren't minority-owned, overhaul management, and connect them to corporate buyers. Ariel says black, brown, indigenous, and other diverse-led businesses receive just 2% of the procurement dollars of Fortune 500 companies. And now it's time for our featured conversation with Fran Siegel of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Um, Fran, in a fiery State of the Union uh, address, uh, uh, President Biden sparred with Republicans. He laid out priorities for the next Congress. He really tried to make the case to ordinary Americans for how the economy can work for them. We at Impact Alpha, we had a very fun uh, live chat on our our Slack channel. I don't know where you watched the State of the Union, but uh, tell us a little bit about what your uh, what what your takeaways were. Yeah. So on Tuesday night, as you said, President Biden, who is two years into his term, gave the State of the Union address, which really set the tone for both public policy and the political landscape over the next year. Um, it was. We feel important for impact investors to understand where there might be some opportunities to engage with the federal government, to leverage what the Alliance calls private capital for public good. And so in that regard, um, yeah, eager to cover a couple of topics that the president raised um, and I think would be of particular interest to your listeners. The first, is that bipartisan movement around some critical priorities is possible. Uh, We think especially so in the area of industrial policy, 
which I can talk about a little bit more in a moment, what it is and why it has broad bipartisan appeal. Let, let's just dive into that and then we'll get to the other ones in, in due course. Um, there has been essentially a, uh, a an industrial policy. It's built around green. It's built around buy American. It's built around build American. Um, and it's uh, and and uh, the, the president uh, made the case of the kind of investment that's going on. Um, and he also made a joke, uh, much of it in, in states that didn't vote for any of those bills or uh, with senators that didn't vote for any of those bills. Yeah, exactly. He said that uh, he'd be willing to, uh, to to go state by state to groundbreaking of key projects, uh, even if the respective legislator didn't vote uh, for the various bills. But what you're touching on is uh, the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, they're spearheading the passage of three major legislative uh, wins. The first is the infrastructure bill. The second is the Chips and Science Act. And the third is the Inflation Reduction Act. And what's so interesting, there was a recent poll that came out um, around the time of the State of the Union, so Monday, Tuesday, that indicated that many Americans don't see the administration as having accomplished much in the last two years. Uh, it uh, It was written about broadly. And that is so interesting because we who follow public policy feel that this tripartite legislative win is just extraordinary, like once in a generation, once in two generations uh, set of policies. So the president justifiably took a bit of a victory lap on Tuesday night, highlighting these important legislative wins. Uh, He touched on them throughout his speech Um, And uh, as you said, applauding bipartisan colleagues for getting them across the finish line and shouting out those uh, that didn't support it. But again, taken together or even taken individually, these bills represent historic investments in the United States infrastructure, into its manufacturing base, um, into our climate change response capabilities and It's important to know we think that these are not Band-Aid policies that kind of kick the can down the road, kick the big intractable problems down the road for the next administration to deal with. These are actually, we see them as system-shifting policies that reflect a strategic vision for how to build a stronger American economy, a more fair American economy, and one that's more resilient. That's so true, Fran. I mean, we've been thinking and writing a a fair amount about the ways in which cities, communities, companies can now uh, rise up to take advantage of all of these incentives and all of this capital flowing. I think the message we've been hearing is the money now is there. Uh, certainly the public money, as you say, and then even certainly the private money that wants to go towards a lot of these kinds of of solutions. And what really is the gap now are the very nitty gritty project development work and and permitting and all of the kinds of things to get these um, these these projects going. And communities really have to gear themselves up to be to be ready to apply for it and and t- make use of it. And can you just give us a little sense of like what are the things we should be thinking about to make sure that this capital does flow in a kind of thoughtful and community-oriented way. Yeah, so there are a couple of um, guardrails about how these uh, the proceeds from these major bills will flow. Um, for example, 
A recent Brookings Institute study said that identified $80 billion uh, set to be deployed to place-based industrial policies, which get to the uh, state and local aspect that you just highlighted. Uh, also wanted to lift up that there is an executive order coming out of the White House uh, that manifested the Justice 40 commitment to try to ensure that the hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funds that uh, will be deployed are done so efficiently and equitably, and that 40% of those dollars need to benefit historically underserved communities and groups. Uh, so that is very encouraging. I think what you're getting at is uh, when the capital is flowing, when states and localities are bidding for projects, um, how can we help communities do so in an effective and equitable way? A former Ford Foundation colleague named Zav Briggs, who's now at Brookings Institute, has talked about uh, seeking uh, not shovel-ready projects, um, but shovel-worthy projects. And I think what is embedded in that concept that's so important is that these be infrastructure um, investments, uh, manufacturing plant investments, uh, local, uh, other, you know, uh, environmentally resilient uh, uh, projects that the community wants and that the community engages, that the jobs are, are high quality jobs. Uh, and so that is really the thing that we are thinking a lot about and a lot of our colleagues are thinking about is how to uh, embed the necessary skill set uh, in, in communities, in rural communities and tribal communities and underserved urban communities so that the capital flows in a thoughtful way. And that is you know, easy for me to toss up and very, very difficult to do. One of the, um, the, the other themes that came through, and, and you know, the president likes to talk about you know, building an economy from the bottom up and the, the middle out, and is the kind of uh, historic uh, shift in the entrepreneurship landscape. And there had been a long-term, many-decade decline in sort of the entrepreneurship and, and business starts. And then in the last two years, and the president, I think, said this twice, 10 million applications for new businesses. Um, and he, he didn't he didn't really call it out, but we've written about it a, a number of times. Um, many of those businesses are black and brown business owners, and in particular, black women have been starting businesses at a kind of historic uh, rate. And one of the questions that always comes up is, you know, businesses start, but but then they have to be nurtured along so they can grow and, and survive and thrive. And um, and what, what are the kind of mechanisms that, uh, you know, can, can ensure that this trend is actually a sort of sticks? So the president, I don't know if you caught this, but the president um, praised Vice President Harris, who is, of course, sitting behind him for her leadership specifically in supporting entrepreneurs' access to capital. Um, and there has, capital has been flowing. Um, there is a program that was actually passed under the last administration called ECIP, which stands for the Emergency Capital Investment Program. And that allocated $12 billion to community development finance institutions. Um, and we believe that this program has the potential to be transformative in strengthening the CDFI community. Um, and for those listeners that don't know what CDFIs are, they're community banks, they're community nonprofit community lenders that serve 
harder to reach small businesses and disproportionately serve small business owners of color. Um, and this ECIP program came about because um, the recognition of the essential role that community and minority-owned banks played during the economic crisis caused by COVID, supporting small businesses and sustaining communities. Um, Eight billion has already been deployed to over 160 CDFIs. And I think the question is now, and, and you raised it, that entrepreneurship is a, a bit more on the rise after years of waning entrepreneurship. And the question becomes, how can these CDFIs, who are the beneficiaries of this federal capital, um, and it's federal capital that functions as equity, which allows banks and CDFIs to lever against it in a, you know, a multiple of ways. So the capital should be there. And the question is, are CDFIs um, reaching underserved entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs, black and brown entrepreneurs. Um, and the other kind of uh, question that we always have, especially for micro entrepreneurs, is, is debt the right instrument? Um, and CDFIs, that's what they have available uh, to them. Oftentimes equity investment is not the right match. And I've been particularly interested in some of the work that Ani Patton uh, Power has done uh, to develop a playbook for alternative uh, structures. And she and Ross Baird um, and a few others have authored a really interesting piece, and maybe we can put it in the show notes, uh, for the Economic Development Authority, the EDA of the Commerce Department, looking at alternative structures. And I hope that CDFIs and others would consider things like revenue-based financing that I think are particularly well-suited to um, the kinds of small business owners, entrepreneurs that we're talking about. Terrific. And then, of course, you know, in addition to, to the entrepreneurs, there's the workers. Um, and again, you know, this is sort of unheralded, you know, for some reason, but, um, you know, record low unemployment rate, um, rising wages. Yes, there's been an inflation issue um, uh, that has, you know, taken a bite out of, out of people's, uh, you know, spending power, but that's been coming down. And, and one of the things that I always, you know, sort of sticks in my craw is when wages were going up, all of a sudden, some of the economists said, oh, that's a bad thing. We better clamp this down with, you know, higher, higher interest rates from the, from the Fed when for, for decades, you know, the, the, the problem was that wages were kind of stagnant. So we've seen, you know, some, some, some real advances for, for workers and, and working families, um, uh, you know, in, in the last couple of years, um, again, you know, how does that get turned into something that 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 is a lot, you know, becomes a long term sort of durable change in the way the economy functions? Yeah, it's such a confusing macroeconomic moment, isn't it, where you have the Fed raising interest rates in an attempt to cool inflation, um, you have rising wages. And yet we hear from the American public that they can't afford eggs. <laughs> they can't afford <laughs> the basics. And, you know, this comes, the, the, the wage increase comes um, after decades of stagnating wages, as you suggested. So there's no question that the purchasing power is, is, has been eroded over time. Um, it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens. And of course, we're operating in a, uh, if you think about some of the geopolitical factors um, that are at play. It's just a very precarious time. Um, 
That said, I think that there is an unprecedented focus now on workers, and we hope that workers um, over time feel that they have increasing power um, after um, waning uh, the waning power of labor unions. We see labor unions a bit more on the rise. And um, President Biden, I was really struck uh, in the State of the Union uh, by his conviction about workers and his call to build a broad consensus around pressing social issues that affect workers, that affect families, and that affect communities. Funny you should mention social, Fran, because that's uh, obviously the S in ESG uh, for environmental, social, and government governance. And uh, uh, in many ways, this is turning out to be the year of the S, wouldn't you say? Well, we certainly hope so. Um, and we are very excited at the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance to be partnering with Impact Alpha on an Impact Alpha call that will be held on February 22nd. And I believe we will put information about how to register in the call notes. But just a very quick preview of what we've teed up. So we have three incredible guests that will be joining us. Uh, one will be Cambria Allen Ratzlaff of Just Capital, and she will weigh in on the very highly anticipated SEC disclosure rulemaking. This is corporate disclosure around human capital management or workforce factors. Uh, she and I relatively recently testified at a House Financial Services subcommittee hearing on this very topic. Uh, we will also hear from Jesse Van Toll of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, also called NCRC, on the state of the forthcoming final rules on the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, which has been reshaped and reformed uh, by the three uh, uh, regulating entities. And we will be hearing from him what he expects to see there. Um, and finally, we'll have Jack Moriarty of Ownership America, uh, on the strategies to drive worker empowerment through employee ownership models and financing strategies. And then, of course, David, you and I will uh, discuss the lay of the land of impact investing public policy more broadly and how members of the Impact Alpha community can become engaged if they are so inclined. Thank you so much, Fran Siegel, the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast and on the calls and in Impact Alpha. Thank you, David. It's great to have joined you tonight. And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Fran Siegel and to our producer, Isaac Silk. Once again, you can find the RSVP link for February 22nd's Agents of Impact call in the show notes and in the brief. And you can read more about all of these stories at impactalpha.com. Not yet a subscriber? Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, our free weekly roundup, directly at impactalpha.com. And want to go deeper? Grab a subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, including the award-winning Morning Brief and our popular Agents of Impact calls. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. I'm David Bank, filling in for Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.